Hi, I'm Christine. And I'm Alan. We'd like to thank you for tuning in to our discussion this week. Our hope is that we'll share some information that you'll find helpful. So now we invite you to join us as we together listen, listen for, for the, the word. word. Hi, everyone. Welcome to our podcast today. We are continuing today to work with those parables of Matthew. And so now today we're in Matthew 22, 1 through 14. These are the ones, at least in Matthew, that come after the uh, destruction of the temple, the cleansing of the temple. And so um, we'll have Alan here put it into context for us, um, especially from what we, where we were last week. Thanks, Christine. Yeah, our gospel lesson this week follows directly from last week, which followed from the week before. And so we're completing basically a series of three parables of judgment um, about the Jewish religious leaders and their rejection of Jesus. And this week uh, also includes um, the rejection of Jesus' messengers. And all three of these parables that we've seen in, in, in a row, the parable of the two sons, the parable of the wicked tenant farmers, and now the parable of the wedding banquet, address the fact that the Jewish religious leaders, and indeed Israel as a whole, have rejected Jesus. Matthew, and it's interesting because Matthew seems to be not concerned at all with the fact that he and his community actually represent Jewish people who had not rejected Jesus. But because, I think that's true because from his perspective, they're now part of the church right. and not Israel. Right. I, I, so uh, the, the thing that, that I noticed was this connection between father and son. Yeah, and this is something that I have said before about the lectionary. Sometimes when we take it piece by piece, like we do week by week, and we don't read it all together, we miss these connections. But um, the, all three parables you know, have the idea of a father and son. Um, and they're also linked by the confrontation with the Jewish religious leaders over the question of Jesus' authority for his ministry. All three of these parables are essentially the response to the Jewish religious leaders' question, by what authority do you do these things? And, um, and so, you know, the, there really is a, a, um, a link between these three parables. In the parable of the two sons and the parable of the wicked tenant farmers, Matthew has the Jewish religious leaders pronounce their own judgment. And so there's kind of a heightening now there in his version of the parable of the wedding banquet because this constitutes sort of the final declaration of judgment not only on the Christian, not only on the religious leaders, but also on the people who had refused the invitation extended by Jesus mm -hmm. and by Christian mm -hmm. prophets. So now is this one um, unique to Matthew or do we see it somewhere else? Well, we do see it somewhere else. There, there is a somewhat different version of this parable in Luke 14, 15 through 24, which is a parable simply about a man hosting a wedding banquet for his son. Uh, there is also a similar version of the parable in the Gospel of Thomas 64. Um, but um, And, and there, there's some debate as to whether or not the differences between Matthew's parable and Luke's parable means that these are two parables or two versions of one parable. I think most people these days opt with these are two versions of the same parable. Mm -hmm. uh, and actually, there is a, a very similar parable in uh, the Babylonian Talmud tractate Shabbat, uh, huh. where it's attributed to the rabbi Yohanan ben Zakkai, uh, talks uh, and the parable is very similar and it's it's a parable about you know who will be included in the age to come and and it's about mm. it's it's almost it's also very similar to the parable of the um, 
uh, the bridesmaids about those who are prepared and those who are not prepared. And so, but there's some a lot of similarities between that that parable in the Babylonian Talmud and and the hmm. parable of the wedding banquet in in uh, the gospel tradition. That's that's interesting. I I didn't know that. Yeah, I, well, I learned that myself. But in comparison with the other versions of the parable in the gospel tradition, Matthew has clearly expanded and enhanced his version to extend the ideas that we already discovered last week in the parable of the wicked tenant farmers about the implications for the Jewish religious leaders of their rejection of him, as well as the implications for the Israel, people of Israel as a whole. Um, and not only of their rejection of Jesus, but in this, in this parable also of their rejection of those sent in his name to proclaim the good news. Right. So <clears throat> how does this parable begin? Well, it, it you know, it's a, it, he, Matthew introduces it in a very familiar way. Once more, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding banquet for his son. That sounds like a typical parable of the kingdom in yeah. Matthew's gospel. Uh, that Jesus speaks in parables is a common phrase for Matthew's gospel. We saw, we saw that in Matthew chapter 13 in the parables chapter. But only in Matthew's version of this parable is the wedding banquet given by a king for his son. Uh, but as, I think as Gene Boring points out, Matthew has introduced the idea of the kingdom in the parable of the wicked tenant mm-hmm. farmers already because he said, you know, the kingdom will be taken from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit. Mm-hmm. And I think this paves the way for the implication that not only that you know, the, the lord of the vineyard in that parable is a king as well, but also mm-hmm. the, uh, paves the way for the idea of a, a wedding banquet given by a king for his son in this parable. Now, we talked about last week that that's probably an allegory for God. Is that true here? Well, it is. Uh, the, you know, again, this is a very allegorical parable. Um, it, it, and, and I think the assumption, the assumption is that the king is God. But uh, I, would, I would caution us again. I don't think this parable is any more about God than the parable of the wicked tenant farmers right. was. Right, so we shouldn't be interpreting it in terms yeah. of God's If character. we do, we come up with a pretty disturbing vision of who God is. I think. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, good point. So uh, how does the parable continue? Well, in Matthew's version, the parable continues when the king sends his slaves to call the guests to the banquet. In verse 23, he sent his slaves to call those who had invited to the wedding banquet, but they would not come. Mm-hmm. I think this presupposes that they would have previously been invited to the banquet and perhaps accepted the invitation. And now the day has come and the feast is ready and the king sends his slaves to call the guests. And in Matthew's version of the gospel, the guests simply refuse the invitation. It's literally, uk ethalon elthine. They were not willing to come. Mm-hmm. Now, Luke's version is a bit softer in that the guests provide excuses, as do, and that's similar to what we find in the Gospel of Thomas. But here the guests just simply refuse to come. And at this mm-hmm. point, I think we should be starting to scratch our heads. Something isn't computing here. Something isn't adding up. Right. Who in the world would refuse the invitation of a king who had absolute power over them? So again, as with the parable of the wicked tenant farmers, this isn't a story. The, the, the details of this parable don't reflect a realistic story from real life. This, the, these, these details are allegorized by Matthew to make a point. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so uh, how does it 
continue after they refuse well it's it's really interesting because in the other two versions of the parable that we have in the gospel tradition in luke and in gospel of thomas uh, immediately you know the 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 host of the banquet sends out his his slaves to invite other people but in matthew's version of the parable the king sends out other slaves to persuade the guests, not just to call them, but to persuade them. Again, he sent out other slaves saying, tell those who've invited, look, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered, and everything is ready, come to the wedding banquet in 22.4. So it's almost like the, 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 the king is trying to persuade his subjects to come to the banquet that he's invited them to. And that doesn't seem very kingly of the host. I mean, (laughs) you you would think that a king just simply has the power to compel his subjects to do what he tells them to do, basically. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, we should be, again, I think we should be catching on to the fact that in Matthew's gospel, the parable of the wedding banquet is not simply a straightforward parable, but like the parable of the wicked tenants, it has been shaped by Matthew into an allegory for salvation history. history. Yeah. And so the first guests were the people of Israel. Mm-hmm. The slaves sent to call them were the prophets. One or the other of the other sets of slaves were Christian prophets proclaiming the gospel. And yeah. <coughs> excuse me. And so this is a this is clearly uh, Matthew has shaped this in a very allegorical way. And and when mm-hmm. you compare it with Luke and you compare it with the Gospel of Thomas, it's very clear that Matthew's done this. Okay, that's that's interesting too. And I I realized that getting back if we do the you know kind of uh um jesus seminar kinds of stuff what jesus what the actual parable might have been um it's interesting to think about yeah and and i i have to say i don't find a lot in this parable in matthew's gospel that reflects my understanding of jesus mm-hmm. so it's Fair problematic enough. it's problematic yeah it is problematic so <clears throat> We talked about this. There's a second set of slaves that come in. What happens then? Yeah. Well, the second set of slaves that were sent to persuade the guests were not successful. Matthew's gospel said, but they made light of it and went away, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his slaves, mistreated them, and killed them. And that's verses five and six. Now, the fact that the guests went away, one to his farm, another to his business, is the only sort of nod that we find in Matthew's mm-hmm. version of this parable to the excuses the guests offer in the versions of the parable in Luke and in Thomas. That the rest, and who are they? Right. <laughs> who are the rest? Seized his slaves, mistreated them, and killed them seems to be a t- detail that Matthew has imported into this parable from the previous parable yes, of the wicked tenant farmers. Yes, that's what happens in the tenant. Yes, and in, and in fact, up on these people. and in fact, um, um, you know, Davies and Allison will say, you know, it's pretty obvious that the this parable of the wedding banquet in Matthew has been very much influenced by um, um, the parable of the wicked tenant farmers, and both Davies and Allison and Ulrich Lutz, you know, basically see this detail in Matthew 22, 6, that the rest seized his slaves, mistreated them, and killed them as an exaggeration. And, and again, I think, you know, Matthew, yeah. we, we see Matthew's hand at work here. Matthew is, mm-hmm. is, 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 is linking these parables, and he's linking the ideas of the rejection of, of the prophets and the and killing of the prophets and the rejection of Jesus and the killing of Jesus and even the rejection of the Christian prophets who brought the gospel to people and and the killing of, of some of them. Mm-hmm. And so 
you know, again, this detail clearly reflects, I think, Matthew's uh, an intent to allegorize this parable as a as an allegory for for the rejection of of Jesus and the rejection of uh, Christian missionaries uh, by the Jewish people. <clears throat> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so, you know, again, he's he's as I've said before, you know, all three of these parables are about the the judgment against the Jewish religious leaders and the people of Israel, uh, and it really even expands and enhances that theme. Well, and I. You hear that, and and Matthew does place them all together. So this idea yep. that they kind of play on each other, yep. I think, would not be lost on the reader. Well, and you they know? really need to be read. They really, I mean, it would really be best to read them all to all together with keeping each other in mind. Right, yeah. right. So, you know, if you want to be fancy, that'd be a fun way to preach on it. Just put them all together. Well, um, and I don't know if, I mean, I think that would be, might be taking off more than you can do in one sermon. That's the problem, right? But, it's a... Yeah, but I think I think our, our understanding, at least, of, of each of the parables needs to be informed by the others. Mm-hmm. So, um, there's there the um, there's one there's there's one detail that's found only in Matthew. Yeah, Tell us yeah. about and that. And it's it's the most disturbing of all. <laughs> um, um, you know, in verse seven, Matthew says that in response to um, the the mistreatment and the killing of his slaves the king was enraged and sent his troops to destroy those murderers and burn their city <laughs> mm-hmm. which that is a really poor vision of god right well that's a militant god yeah yeah that that's really problematic but but beyond that i mean i think again we should be scratching our head wait a minute isn't this all about a wedding banquet that is ready to be served mm-hmm <laughs> How is it that the king has time to mobilize his army, destroy the murderers, and while he's at it, raise the city? I mean, that's, you know, what happens to the fat calves that have been slaughtered and everything has been prepared, you know? It's, Mm -hmm. uh, it's, it's doesn't make sense on that kind of a reading. It does, however, carry out the judgment that the Jewish religious leaders had pronounced on the wicked tenant farmers, Right. In the previous parable, in verse twenty-one, right. in, in Matthew twenty-one forty-one, when Jesus asked them what would happen, what would what would the Lord of the vineyard do to the tenants? Right. He said, "They, the Jewish leaders themselves, said he will put those wretches to a miserable death." Right. And so, in a sense, basically, it carries out that judgment that they had pronounced on themselves. Yeah, that's the, and and that's you wouldn't pick up on that if you were not paying attention to the parable before it. But yeah. that's kind of interesting. Uh, irony there that he pulls that back in yep yep well and it's uh, almost as if it's almost as if in the two previous parables they answer the question of you know what's the appropriate what what's the appropriate action here and yeah. now jesus just simply declares right this is what's going to happen yeah so very interesting <clears throat> but once again you know as we saw last week the parable doesn't work well if we try to read this allegory as if it were about god uh, you know, I mean, God is a, as a, as a king who gets mm-hmm. angry and sends his, his, his armies to destroy the murderers and burn their city. You know, that's, that's a problematic image for God mm-hmm. at, to right. say the least. But r- r- again, I think it's important for us to realize this is not a parable about God. This is a parable about the rejection, not only of the prophets, but also of Jesus and the Christian mercenaries after him who had proclaimed the gospel. Mm-hmm. Now, 
and this might be a bit of a disturbing point, but throughout history and still today, most interpreters see this statement as a reference to the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 CE. And really the disturbing part of this is if if you follow the line of thinking in Matthew, the question is whether this means that God's work with Israel is finished. And that's a question that's still debated. Um, I could see, I can see that Matthew may have believed that, but you know, as we talked about last week, Paul still, Paul still held out hope for a continuing role of, of Israel. So I mean, maybe maybe this is Matthew's view, but um, um, you know, it, it creates all kinds of problems. I think in it, terms of it does, of, it does. So at this point, Matthew's version of the parable returns to the storyline in the other versions of the parable. Then he said to his slaves, "The wedding is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go therefore into the main streets and invite everyone you find to the wedding banquet." Those slaves went out into the streets and gathered all whom they found, both good and bad. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. That's verse, verses really 8 to 10. Up, gathered whom they found. And in my mind, I'd always left out both good and bad. So what an interesting addition there. It's only in Matthew. I hadn't thought about. Yeah. It's only in Matthew. Both good and bad. Well, and that there's a reason for that in Matthew, and we'll we'll see right, that. Right, right, right. I thought that that caught me. Yeah. Yes, and that's not you know Luke's gospel doesn't say that, right, you know. So the right. so the other canonical version that we're familiar with, you know, doesn't say that. Now that the original guests were not worthy, you know, is also only a sentiment in 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 Matthew's gospel because right. you know this whole line of thinking is all about how. Uh, the Jewish religious leaders and and the people of Israel refused to accept Jesus, and and because of that, you know, the, what are the consequences for them, mm-hmm. you know, in terms of salvation history and in terms of their place in God's in God's kingdom, and, and you know, so here it's the original guests were not worthy, and it, I think it echoes the sentiment clearly from the parable of the wicked tenant farmers that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people that produces its fruits in Matthew twenty one forty three. I think that's an mm-hmm. echo of that. Right, right. So right. then the, the solution to that problem, therefore, uh, was to go out and invite everyone to the banquet so that the slaves gathered in all whom they found, both good and bad. Now, one, one question here is, where did the king send them to go? <laughs> in the new RSV, it says, to the main streets. And, and that's also the translation found in, in the Geneva Bible, the King James, the American Standard, the New American Standard, many, you know, several others. Um, also, a variant of this, I would say, is that some have the street corners. That's the NIV and the New Living Translation and some others. So was it the main streets, or was it? did the king send them to where the roads exit the city? And that's the translation of the Holman Christian Standard Bible. But there are versions of that translation in uh, the American Standard Version and the CEB and the New Testament for Everyone. And so the issue really is the interpreters and the interpretation of the phrase tas diexadus ton hadon, the outlets of the ways. And it could refer to street crossings where one would expect to find many people, which makes sense. You send them to yep. the street crossings, the intersections, the main, the main roads. Or it could refer to the places where the streets go out of the city into open mm-hmm. country. Uh, so it's... Um, to where the roads exit the city or to the outlets of the ways, basically, uh, with the idea that the slaves were to seek out even those who are in desolate places. 
And uh, both Davies and Allison and uh, Ulrich Lutz support the idea that uh, this really should be translated as the outlet of the ways or, or to, the, to where the roads exit mm-hmm. the city. Well, it has more power that way, doesn't it? I, well, it, it, I like, I mean, either way, you know, you can see a, a rationale for the translation, but um, it, it just turns on the use of this, of this unusual word, um, diexodos. Um, and mm-hmm. so, I saw it, that. yeah, it, it really turns on that, the, how we interpret that unusual word. But, um, and, and, you know, the Bauer, Arndt, Gingrich, Danker, Lex can also um, supports this idea that it really is about where the roads um, lead out of the city. Mm-hmm. And, and so the idea is that they're, to go even to places, even to the desolate places, and, and find people in those places. And I like the imagery of that. I do too. Yeah. I do too. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. So there's an expansion to this. Tell yes, and, and again, <laughs> Matthew's, you know, we've seen that Matthew has heavily revised this parable of the wedding banquet already. And now there's an expansion or a second scene to the parable uh, in verses 11 through 13. But when the king came in to see the guest, he noted a man, he noticed a man who was not wearing a wedding robe. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding robe? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and throw him into the outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's verses 11 through 13. We have talked about that before. Yeah. And the gnashing of teeth. Yeah. Well, and yeah, we've, I mean, that's a, that's a consistent phrase in, in Matthew. Um, and, and you find it somewhat in, in Mark as well. Uh, again, I think a straightforward reading of this parable makes no sense. You know, how could a king expect people gathered in from the streets to be wearing a wedding garment? You know, that just yeah, doesn't make any right. sense. Now, since the days of Augustine, it has been customary to say that the king would have provided the garment, but there's no evidence for that idea. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the clue to this detail is found in the slaves that, uh, having gathered both good and bad. Um, right. all that they found, both good and bad. And this correlates, we've seen, we've seen this before. Matthew has this view that the kingdom of God and or the church is composed of both the righteous and the evil. Mm-hmm. Uh, we saw this in the parable of the wheat and the weeds in Matthew 13, and especially in the parable of the net with fish of every kind in Matthew mm-hmm. 13. And, and so uh, the kingdom of God and the church are composed of both the righteous and the evil who will right. be separated at the final judgment. And and you know this this is a this is a theme that is unique to Matthew and and mm-hmm. uh, you know it's not something we heard in Luke's gospel it's not something we heard in Mark's gospel it is a theme that yeah. is unique to Matthew and mm-hmm. um, I mean we can talk perhaps later about the practicality of it I mean it it does seem that there is some 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 um, um, validity to the idea that not everyone who identifies with the community of, of faith is going to be equally committed to the life of discipleship. But right. the, the real question in my mind is, does that make them evil and therefore they're to be rejected and, and, and right. condemned at the, at the final judgment? And that's a problem for me. Well, and Calvin goes into this, and the last time we visited this, I talked about it more, but he views it as there's a general calling and a special calling. Mm-hmm. So he kind of has this 
into right. kind of different categories. Well, but, that way he can preserve his idea of election because exactly, it, because if people exactly. are, are elect and then they don't they don't you know follow through, then then how does that say about God's sovereignty? Exactly, exactly. Yeah. So yeah. just uh, you know, obviously they've been grappling with this forever. I have a question for you though, and and maybe I'm jumping too far. So if the fella that shows up without his wedding garment on um, is representing the bad. To me, good and bad is reflecting a plural, whereas there's one guy. Right. So uh, uh, that really bothers me. Well, Maybe and I think that's another part of the detail of the parables that we really shouldn't press, you know. <laughs> um, okay. Uh, because if you think about it, the way the parable concludes is many are called, but few are chosen. You know, that's not what this parable refers to, right? And so, um, you, you just have to you have to go with Matthew's allegorical world here, and he just represents. He sort of he sort of this individual represents all those who are okay. who are like the wheat. I mean, like the like the weeds, weeds or like the okay. bad fish. You know that are going to be separated okay. out. Uh, and I, th- I think it's interesting though because. This expansion of the parable applies the main themes of judgment to Matthew's own community. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, you know, all in the other parables, you know, the whole point has been the idea of the Jewish religious leaders sort of pronouncing their own judgment for failing to do the Father's will or for rejecting and killing uh, his God's messengers and, and finally Jesus. Um, but now this idea of judgment is extended to apply to those in the church. And I think the idea is the one articulated in Matthew 7. In connect, there it's in connection with false prophets, but the, the idea is you will know them by their fruits. Mm-hmm. So that even among those who have joined themselves to the new community of Jesus' disciples, a lack of proper fruit, again, the kingdom is going to be given to a people who will produce its fruit. Well, if you don't produce, if you're not producing its fruit, <laughs> then right. then that invalidates your profession of faith, or a, a lack of a proper commitment to fulfill all righteousness, or and or to do the Father's will. These are themes in Matthew's gospel that that are very important in uh, in terms of discipleship. That those who are called to follow Jesus are called to mm-hmm. seek God's kingdom and seek God's righteousness. They're called to um, to fulfill all righteousness. They're called to fu- to obey the Father's will. And so it seems like that is that is the that is the crux here. Um, you know, right. there's been a debate in the history of the church over what is the wedding garment? Is it faith? Is it good deeds? Is it right. baptism? I think in Matthew's context, it's it refers to this this sort of this sort of theme of you know the expectation of those called to produce right. fruit, to fulfill all righteousness, to do the Father's will. I have a question for you about Matthew's community, because I think of the community as whole. And so is he trying to encourage the community to be people who are fruitful? Is it also is it a warning to them? Is it a is it a criticism of those who are in the church? I think it's I think it's an encouragement and a warning. Okay. I think it's an encourage. I think he's trying to, you know, the, the the purpose of this kind of of language typically is is either to encourage um, uh, sort of those who need encouraging to to step up their discipleship or to warn those who are slacking, you know, of the consequences mm-hmm. of doing so. And the idea is, you know, uh, I, I, I so I. 
I got interested in Calvin this week myself, and so I, I read Calvin, you know, Calvin's commentaries on this passage. And, you know, the, it's, it's that idea that Paul brings up, you know, if, if, the, um, if the natural branches were, were, were cut off, how much more so can those branches that have been grafted in to the olive vine be cut off? And so the idea is that, you know, um, just because, just because um, the Jewish religious leaders and perhaps the people as a whole rejected Jesus and his messengers and were therefore uh, subject to judgment for it doesn't mean that that somehow the Christian community is is immune from that same kind of mm-hmm. judgment that they're they're expected to to produce the fruit of the kingdom, mm-hmm. and so it's it's a <laughs> it, you know you, you you might struggle to find encouragement in that <laughs> it is definitely a warning but I think he's I think he's trying to use that to to spur them on to right. to fruitful discipleship. Fair enough. Um, so how does the parable? And. Well, and in, in the parable ends with this, this statement, which is, in, again, only found here in the whole gospel tradition. It's not found anywhere else, not in Thomas, not in any, anywhere else. Many are called, but few are chosen. Now, in Luke's gospel, the parable ends with Jesus' declaration, for I tell you, none of those who are invited will taste my dinner. Mm-hmm. That conclusion makes more sense. Right, right. that does make more sense. <laughs> it makes sense. Uh, Thomas's conclusion is interesting. Businessmen and merchants will not enter the places of my father. And so the idea is, you know, these worldly pursuits keep one from right. the spiritual right. endeavors of the kingdom, which uh, goes along with Thomas's Gnostic agenda. But in Matthew, this whole series of parables about ju- the judgment of the Jewish religious leaders and the people of Israel, and now as well, the judgment even of those who have joined Matthew's community, concludes with the declaration, many are called, but few are chosen. Mm-hmm. Now, as I said, this saying only appears here in the gospel tradition, but it is consistent with some of Matthew's other statements and with his interest in the separation that takes place in the judgment. Mm. You know, um, and so this seems to be a line of thinking that Matthew is pursuing here. And, and there's a similar statement, you know, um, um, uh, the wide road in Matthew seven thirteen and 14. Wide is the road, and many are the people who follow this path, and it leads to destruction. But narrow is the road, and few are they who find it that mm-hmm. leads to life. You know, And so this contrast between the many and the few is one that Matthew has, 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 promotes. And, mm-hmm. you know, again, it's a view of, uh, you know, it's a view of, salvation perhaps that could be problematic for us and right. it's a view of, of absolutely yeah absolutely. yeah it's mm-hmm. a view of the christian life i think though i think to be fair to matthew what he's trying to do here is to is to um uh really call and and, and draw his community into faithful right. discipleship i think I that's think so what he's too. doing yeah i think so too I don't think he's just worrying. I don't think this is just a simplistic turn or burn kind of kind of thinking. It's he's really drawing, trying to draw them into right. into faithful discipleship. I agree. I agree. Um. So then, any final comments that you want to make about this? Well, you know, we we've seen in our journey through Matthew in in this year A of the lectionary cycle that Matthew has a, a, a distinctive pos, uh, perspective on judgment and its role in the kingdom of God. Um, His reading of the kingdom is one of grace, to be sure. We saw that in the Beatitudes. Mm -hmm. 
Right. But also, and to a much greater extent, his reading of the kingdom is one of demand. That the kingdom mm-hmm. of God demands that our li- that we ad- uh, uh, align our lives with it, and that we right. we produce the kingdom's fruit. And as far as that goes, I have no problem with that, and I, I right. you know, I, I value that particular contribution. But as I've said before, in my view, Matthew's understanding of the kingdom also is is has this emphasis on judgment that is much closer with the view of John the Baptist and his vision of judgment than Jesus' vision of even in Matthew's gospel. Matthew eighteen fourteen is not the will of my Father that one of these little ones should be lost. You know that doesn't sound like what what these parables are talking about. It's, it sounds like there are many who are going to be lost, and that's by design. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Ex- exactly, and that's, which is bothersome. It's that's bothersome, bothersome, yeah, yeah. Uh, and so in this parable, Matthew has not only completed his vision of judgment on the Jewish religious leaders and the people of Israel, but has also extended it to his own community. And, you know, as I've said before, I think what's going on here is that Matthew is, has been very much influenced by the apocalyptic thinking that was going around in the Jewish community in the, in the first century world. And um, uh, I, I think we see perhaps the, the negative effects of that on his theology in, in, in this mm-hmm. parable. Mm-hmm. I think so, too. I have some questions that I'm going to hold off for our later discussion, but I think we can talk a little more about Matthew's community then. Yeah, sounds good. Thanks. Okay, thanks. Hi, friends. We're back, and we're going to take some time now with Christy to take a look at what the Reformers had to say about this passage, and particularly John Calvin. So, Christy, uh, take it away. I have a few different voices for this parable. Uh, note, of course, Calvin does do this in, within his harmonization, but I kind of like that he spends a little time thinking about why Matthew placed it where he did. And he says, look, he placed this intentionally within a series of stories that were hateful toward the scribes. So Matthew, according to Calvin, did not place it according to chronology, which is always always Calvin's thing is to try to put the chronology. And he said, look, Matthew simply didn't even do that. He put it in because it fits with this theme. And I just think that, again, shows his kind of sophistication for the age. Yeah, and it's amazing that he's able to see that. And, of course, again, if you read the three parables, you know, one by one, I mean, Mm -hmm. it's pretty Mm -hmm. clear that they're connected in Matthew. Yeah. But for the Reformation era, reformers, this era, this is allegorical, but they don't necessarily agree on the allegory. And I didn't go through each and every, yeah. you know, obviously when they get into allegory, they each and everything has a meaning. And there's places where I just scratched my head. So I tried to look for commonalities. They all agree that the son in the parables, Jesus, which implies, of course, that the king is God. God is, in their interpretation, hosting the wedding feast for Jesus. As a wedding feast, this is supposed to be a sumptuous, fancy, big banquet. They all agree that it's a big deal. <laughs> yeah, in my understanding, this, that was in my understanding that was something that was that was prominent in in the interpretation of this passage throughout Christian history was that, you know, the the idea of the um, final banquet as a wedding feast, um, you know, for for between Christ and the church. Mm-hmm. Right, right. So beyond this, the allegory shifts a little bit. So who does Jesus marry? 
several, not all, feel that the bride is the church. So in other words, all faithful peoples are the bride. Others say that the marriage was Jesus with the soul of sinners. A little more explicit than the first description as it claims that these people have given of themselves to be the saved ones. The perfection of this marriage is at judgment day. So in these different analogies, we are running into the definition of what it means mm -hmm. to be the church. And that's not consistent. <laughs> yeah. So I have a, my first one is fun. I love you could see the a denominational, if you will, um, differences here. So for example, um, Cornelius Alapidi, who um, draws on the medieval tradition, quotes Origen, the union of Christ with the soul mm -hmm. and by the offspring of good works. In other words, the church are those identified in the, in the God in terms of God's works where others are concerned with the soul. Yeah. So that was interesting. Yeah. Um, so we definitely see the Roman Catholic Church and Reformed division here. Uh, Alapati uh, claims that the good works are the mark of the church and Richard Baxter, a Reformed pastor, the soul. So you're seeing that kind of tension. Yeah, I think the I think the um, the Reformed tradition in general had a little bit of a challenge with the idea that um, that you know the whole point on which their salvation hung was whether or not they produced fruit slash good works because you know of, of the of the prominence of justification by faith in their thinking. Right, right. Well, and wait till we get to Calvin, but we're not there yet. So all the others have similarities in that their Jews are considered to be the first to deny the wedding mm -hmm. invitation. Um, now, Calvin not only identifies this first group as Jews, but actually goes out of his to explain why he believes this. So he doesn't just take the allegory that had been there for centuries, and he, he actually explains it. He says that in the parable, Jesus having the servants go out into to the invited is clearly reflected in the idea that the Jews were the first as they were the chosen people and the invitation to the marriage feast was the invitation to those those first ones and they promised redemption. The rejection reflects the Jews having looked to worldly matters more than the kingdom of God. They just weren't interested and were even angry at the inconvenience. As noted in the parable, not all are ignoring the call of God for the same reasons, but all reflect the attention going to secular concerns rather than God. And, you know, I read that part in, in Calvin's commentary, as I said, and, and, you know, I wanted to ask him, well, what about David? What about Abraham? What about the prophets? Yeah. Oh. <laughs> well, yeah. And I, my sense was that my sense of that is that he's talking about later. He's mm -hmm. talking about after those oh, people. Right. He's talking maybe about um, the people there at, at Jesus' day. Sure. I'm not sure. But, sure. Um, well, and maybe maybe Calvin's doing something similar to Matthew. You know, maybe Calvin is 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 including those faithful in you know not necessarily in the, in in the people of Israel, but in, or in the Jewish people, but in the people of God that is completed in the church. Uh, you know, I think that's a really good observation for Calvin, and we know that Calvin tended to do this because of his own experience of persecution. Mm -hmm. We see that quite a bit in his writing, and I think that's actually a really, really good possibility that he's kind of responding to what's around him, which is Matthew did. So while he's not saying that or even identifying it, I think that makes sense as of where his um, analysis comes yeah, from. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, the second group, obviously the first group are the Jews. The second group are invited are the Gentiles. 
And Calvin argues this as well as several other reformers. And that the servants sent to the highways were called to take the place of the first invi invited. And, um, um, and Calvin quotes Deuteronomy 32.21. They have provoked me by those who are not gods, and I will provoke them by which is not a people. But, and by a foolish nation will I enrage them. Yep. So he, Calvin claims that the Gentiles took their place and compared them to the poor, the blind, and the lame. Quoting Romans 11.17, Calvin says that they are wild branches engrafted into the olive tree. And I think this is a generally a very Pauline line of thinking. Mm -hmm. I agree. So even though the Jews are the first targeted for being distracted by worldly goods and activities, Calvin warns that this temptation is for all. And when we ignore God and God's kingdom, then we cut ourselves off from God and how God sustains us. Makes sense. Well, and, and that seems to be, that seems to be, you know, the, the idea, um, I ran into this in, in some of the commentaries I was looking at, um, you know, the idea is <clears throat> one's response to the kingdom is um, of s serious consequence. You know, it's not something to be taken lightly. Mm -hmm. and, and if you respond to it by making light of it and you respond to it by just ignoring it, then, you know, there are going to be consequences for that. And, um, you know, um, yeah, you know, you, uh, so I hear what, what, what Calvin is saying there. Yeah, yeah. So now we move on to the wedding garment favorite. <laughs> this, according to Baxter, remember we met Baxter before, the, the Puritan uh, preacher, is coming to the wedding feast without having the sound resolution to adopt the behavior of a believer. Mm. So see what is happening. We have the Roman Catholic Church who are focusing first on works and the Protestants who are mm -hmm. focusing first on belief. My favorite example of this is from a Lutheran writer, Niels Hemmingsen. He's a contemporary of, of Melanchthon. He's actually a friend of Melanchthon's um, and uh, does a lot of, uh, uh, of work, uh, joins kind of the, the Philippus side in the kind of division of Lutherans later on. But anyway... He divides the people into three groups. One, those who don't come to the wedding at all. Now, hold on. Defined as the Turks and the Jews. Of course. The ungodly and many heathens. Of course. Of course. <laughs> Very Reformation era ring to that. <laughs> it's just, you're reading along and then you're hit with that. It just, it, it, I can't help but kind of laugh. It, it is, yeah. it is, it is, it is. Um, bias right then he talks about those who come without the wedding garment and he concludes something very in between quote whether you call lively faith or holiness of life the wedding gar garment you shall not take your mark amiss for as the calling this marriage requires faith so it requires also also true holiness yeah so in his world it's both it's 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 both belief and works right belief is first right Another reformer puts it this way. You can't sit at the table of God and continue to act in sin. So, and Calvin concurs, but Calvin goes further and he says this discussion about faith and holy life or works is irrelevant. I like, actually like that point. I do too. One does not exist without right. the other. So, right. I mean, and his point is stop this bickering about it first. This is all part of being uh, a true disciple. So people must, quote, wear the trappings of some people with faith and thus the wedding garment. 
And he also addresses why the one without the wedding gar garment is treated so harshly, harshly, because this is very bothersome to him. And he says, Calvin says, because we are closed, we are called to be clothed in Christ. It is not so much the literal existence of a nice garment, but rather the appearance of one who is supplied with the garment of God that God supplies in Christ. Yeah. And I, I think I hear the influence of Augustine here, you know, that Augustine mm -hmm. be believed that, the, that, that the king would supply the garment. But, but I mean, this is, this is, you know, and th this is something I notice, you know, I've noticed all along with Calvin is that Calvin, Calvin never hesitates to, to interpret the Gospels and to interpret Jesus through a Pauline lens. <laughs> if it, no, if it you're works. absolutely right. Yeah. yeah. And, and we, we see Augustine and Calvin a lot too. Yeah. 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 Then finally, Calvin addresses that many are called and few are chosen. This reminds us, he says, that we should not flatter ourselves in our faith, but rather examine ourselves. Calvin actually examines this further in the Institutes. And this is what I focused on mm -hmm. last time where he talks about the two kinds of call, the general call where God invites all equally through preaching and a special call, which is to the believers where the spirit of God quote dwells in their hearts. Mm. Here he describes the lack of a wedding garment, meaning that one is not clothed with Christ's sanctification. Well, and again, that's kind of a Pauline notion because yep. Pauline uses that language of putting off the old man and putting on the new yep. man or being clothed with Christ. Right. And and uh, as a, as a as a metaphor for um, the, right. the the transformation that happens in one's life through through faith and through the work of the Spirit. Mm -hmm. Yep, I, I yep, and we we saw that in there, and so that's that's kind of where our reformers are at. But um, it you know it wasn't exci as exciting as I hoped it would be, I guess. But it, it, it I do think we see some some themes that move to us today and how we understand this. Passage. Well, I think that I, you know, again, I, I'm, I'm always mar I always marvel that Calvin, you know, I, I, I did a newsletter column on Calvin this week. You know, Calvin lived in a time where people still believed the world was flat. Right. <laughs> you know, Calvin, <laughs> Calvin lived not long after Galileo made his observations of the moons of Jupiter, which led to him, led him to change, you know, from, from um, an earth as the center of the universe to the sun as the center right. of the solar system. And, and um, you know, there, there were, I mean, Calvin, in, in Calvin's day, uh, the Jamestown um, uh, colony had just been established. You know, the new world was still completely undiscovered. And there was just so much that, so much that we take for granted that Calvin didn't know. But yet Calvin, you know, um, in, 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 Pointing out that you know it's it's faith that expresses itself in works. Um, I think he's really he's he's hit the nail on the head in terms of what Matthew's getting at here. Right, I think so too. And and uh, I, it's one of the better, actually, one of the better analyses I've seen. Um, so yeah. especially considering his time, yeah, and, and compared to some of the other folks. <laughs> Right, right. Uh, right? Yeah. Because it becomes a debate, and Calvin's like, you're missing the point. Right, and I appreciate right. that. I like that, too. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks, Thanks. Christy. Hey, everyone. We're back. And uh, I promised that I had some questions for Alan. And 
Knowing how much that Matthew focused his discussion towards his community, I wondered if there was a problem in Matthew's community of people claiming to be Christian who really weren't acting as Christians. Um, sometimes theologically we call this antinomianism. And so I wondered if that was present in his community. So, Alan, go for it. <laughs> well, you know, I am very familiar with antinomianism in the Pauline communities. Uh, Paul deals with it extensively. Um, and, um, you know, um, there, for example, in the church at Corinth, you know, there's some, there's some excesses of behavior that Paul confronts and says, you know, look, this isn't consistent with your calling uh, as Christians, and you can't, you know, you can't do both. You can't, you know, you can't follow Jesus and, and live in this way. Um, and uh, you see some of it also... Um, in reflected in um, the rest of Paul's correspondence, it seems like it's an ongoing uh, battle. You know that there are um, almost um, Christians who are so um, emphasizing their freedom from the law through Jesus Christ that they think it means freedom to do whatever they please, and and you know Paul you know, emphasizes, no, <laughs> you know, there's still the law of love and there's still the law of Christ and there, there is still, um, you know, this obligation to live our lives as Christians in a manner worthy of the calling that we've received, as he says in Ephesians 4. And so, um, yeah, I mean, that was an issue in the Pauline communities. We don't know a whole lot about Matthew's community other than what we can learn from Matthew's gospel. And the mo most of what we can learn from Matthew's gospel is, you know, that, that Matthew's community was living in conflict with the Jewish synagogue and their leaders. Um, scholars debate whether or not that conflict was um, in process and they were still connected with the Jewish synagogue or whether it was already completed and they were already separated from the Jewish synagogue, we don't really know. Uh, where we, no, I don't think anybody can say for certain you know, where Matthew's community was at the time of the writing of his gospel. Um, it would make sense to think that perhaps there was a problem going on, a problem like this going on in Matthew's community, because Matthew emphasizes so much the demands of discipleship in terms of, um, you know, seeking first God's kingdom and his righteousness mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. and, and you know, sticking with the narrow road that leads to life and, and doing the will of the Father. You know, he says, he says in, in Matthew 7 also, not everybody who says to me, Lord, Lord, right? right, um, right. It, but it, it is those who do the will of my Father who right. will enter the kingdom of heaven. And so... Um, you wonder, I mean, who is he directing that to? Is he directing that to people in his community who are, who are not um, stepping up and living a life of faithful discipleship? Is he directing that? You know, sometimes I wonder, some of the passages in Matthew where he emphasizes things like this, I wonder if he's directing it to the leaders of the church, in fact, mm -hmm. uh, as a warning to, to them, you know, that, look, you, you face the same temptations that the Jewish religious leaders did, and you're, you're human, and, and you need to be careful about these things um, no less than, than, than they did. Um, 
But, you know, Matthew does have this very strong emphasis on discipleship. And as I've said before, that's something I appreciate in Matthew's gospel. Um, I, when it comes to this passage, it's troubling because, you know, I, I, I don't see the idea that, um, okay, you know, there are good and bad people in the church and, and, and the good are going to be saved and the bad are going to be thrown into the fire, you know, and that just, that just, that's a, that's a theology that doesn't seem to me to be consistent with Jesus. It doesn't seem to me to me to be consistent with Paul. It doesn't seem to me to be consistent with the prophetic um, uh, understanding of God, you know, and, and yet Calvin's predestination does fit into this that part of his theology, which we've talked about, is so incons- actually so inconsistent with Calvin. Mm-hmm. But you know, it it's it becomes an easy way to say, well, explain away why people aren't saved. And I, I think a lot of that from Calvin comes out of his own experience of persecution. Well, I don't and, know. and I think I th- you know there is a tension in in the Christian life and just in 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 life in general. There is a tension. Uh, uh, of, uh, you know, why do some people hear the gospel, respond to it, and ju- it just takes root and it just, it just blooms beautifully in their lives and produces so much fruit? And why is it that in other people's lives they hear the same gospel and it just doesn't have the same effect on their lives? Right. Yeah. That's a yeah. mystery, right? And and it and is a and I get that Calvin wanted to try to explain that by the theory of predestination. I just right. I don't feel the need to try to um, read God's mind <laughs> to that extent. Right. <laughs> um, I, I like the fact that the study catechism, for example, you know, says, you know, we don't really know, you know, what the outcome of judgment is going to be. Uh, Here are some things we do know, you know, that God is a holy God and is not to be taken lightly. God's holiness is not to be taken lightly. But we also know that the judge is going to be Jesus who died for us, and no judge could possibly kinder or more gracious than Jesus. And and the rest of it, I think, we leave in the hands of of God's grace and mercy and love. And, uh, you know, for me... Leaving it in the hands of God's grace and mercy and love is an, leads to an optimistic result, not a pessimistic result. Right, I right, think, right. I think this is where Matthew's influence, the, the influence of apocalyptic thinking on Matthew is coming out, though, because apocalyptic is a very pessimistic outlook on, on this question of why do some people respond in faith and, and live a holy life, and why do some people right. not? Uh, apocalypticism... Uh, was written to persecuted people. And apocalyptic literature was for people who were living under oppression. And basically, the basic gist of it was, look, these these powerful people who are oppressing you now are going to be destroyed, and you're going to be set free from this oppression. Right. Well, that's a very... That starts with a very negative outlook on 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 reality in this in the first place, and and right. so we shouldn't be surprised then that apocalyptic apocalyptic thinking leads to this notion that, okay, you know, you got good people and you got bad people, and the good people are going to 
be able to enjoy the benefits of the heavenly banquet, whereas the bad people are going to be thrown out in the, right. and bound, right. bound and thrown out into the outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth, right. Uh, right. which is a metaphor well, that, for, 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 for condemnation in hell, you know. Well, and it does, you know, that, that does make sense, especially in that position. And yet we still have those questions today. If, you, mm-hmm. if we go so far to, to argue for universalism and you have... You have characters. I mean, Adolf Hitler always comes to mind. Right. Mao Zedong comes to mind. Any of these totalitarian dictators who are responsible for the deaths of millions of right. people, do you justify that they are saved? Right. And 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 and, and it is a question mark. And so it does. It's easier to fall into a theology that says, well, obviously they they're not in. You know, well, and I, um, I, I think I think Matthew was more concerned with the people who, just in their day to day living. I mean, you know, the the excuses right. the excuses that come up in Luke that seems to be very right. consistent with Jesus' teaching, right? Well, I'm right. too busy with my farm, or I'm too right. busy getting right. married, or I'm too busy, you yeah. know, to 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 really respond to to yeah. to the gospel the way you're asking me to that right. I, I see that more than 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 I see people like Adolf Hitler or Mao Zedong right. you know well no you're right it's just kind of a oh I have better things to do I'm not yeah. you know I think yeah. I think that would have been Matthew's concern would be to to deal with the complacency that that people can yes. can with which people can respond to the gospel. They can say, oh, that sounds nice, but then they just go on and it doesn't really make a difference in the way they live. Yes, yes, and, yes. And, you know, for me, and, you know, here's the thing, you know, the, the classic misunderstanding is that for Paul, we're saved by faith, and, and so that justification by faith is the watchword, right? And it's, mm-hmm. for, it's for James that we're saved by, James and Matthew, we're saved by works, we're saved by what we do, it's our salvation rests on, on producing good fruit and, and fulfilling God's righteousness, uh, and that leads to the Roman Catholic emphasis on merit and works. I agree with Calvin. It's a it's a false dichotomy. It's really not an either or in the New Testament. True faith, right. saving faith, is going to change your life, and you're right. going to do the things that are going to fulfill righteousness in according to the New Testament. Right. I agree. I'm going to throw another wrench in here, um, and I because I think this is a problem in contemporary Christianity, and the idea that oh well once you identify that you have faith that all of a sudden you're going to have change your whole life and you're going to be the born again movement that you'll be new and i think that causes a lot of problems right because i think that's how some of the contemporary groups view it, it as is. opposed to a process of of sanctification that happens over time because um and so i think there's a i agree with calvin 100 percent, and yet i don't think it's a i'm a christian and therefore i behave this way i think it's a growing I think it's a growing thing. I think your faith grows and changes, and I think your response to faith grows and changes. Absolutely, yeah. When I lived in that world, you know, for twenty-five years, I was I was a Baptist minister for twenty-five years, and I, I was a Baptist seminary professor, and I saw that that I saw those people who were who for whom the whole born again idea was so prominent, and honestly, my impression was that for them, living the Christian life. Being a disciple of Jesus meant adopting a kind of shallow, artificial uh, persona that was not genuine. 
and, and and but but this was this was sort of their idea of what it meant to have your life change was that you there was this sanctified persona and and it's, it, it's a certain way of talking it's a certain way of of yes. of of dressing it's a certain way of doing everything that is that is sort of the christian way and it becomes this kind of veneer on your life that doesn't really amount to real transformation. I don't think that's what I don't think that's what the New Testament is about. Myself, the New I Testament is about a change yeah. of heart that works its way out in genuine ways in your life. That's still that that means you can still be a real human being. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you don't right, have to right. be this. Yeah. You don't have to be this sort of fake Christian Ken or Barbie doll right. all of a sudden. Well, and I right? think it. I think it. Yeah, and I think it's not very realistic either. You know, how many people come to that and they're, they feel changed and then all of a sudden they're finding themselves back into their patterns before. I mean, I, well, I it, it, it also it, it also comes from a sort of a, a magical way of thinking about about faith yeah. in general. Not only yes. that, yes. you know, not only that we can pray to God and, and that becomes sort of a, a glorified wish fulfillment, but also that that all of a sudden all of our troubles all of our human problems all of our all of our life problems are going to disappear and everything's going to be perfect right here and now right. you know that's 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 not consistent with the new testament and it's not realistic you know it's it's right. like i said it it becomes kind of christian faith as a veneer that you overlay on yourself so that people will think you're christian and it's uh, right, you know time, right. time and time again i've seen that i've seen that veneer you know get just just shredded by right. a crisis or by temptation or by right. you know whatever may come the way that 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 just uh, you know, that that kind of shallow faith can't handle. It, it, that's not what, I don't think that's what Matthew's getting at. I don't think that's what the New Testament is getting at. I think the New Testament is getting at a change of heart that works its way out in an authentic change of life. And you still get to be a real human being, right? I mean, right, right, right. You, you know, there's no sanctified way of, way of, way of talking. I mean, you don't have to say, well, if God wills, I'll do this every time right, you say right. something. But there are some people out there who do that, right? You don't have to say, yeah, boy, that really worked out. Praise the Lord. You know, every <laughs> time. I mean, and right. it's, I mean, but exactly. I've, I've known people that it's like, it's like they're, they're just almost brainwashed that every time they say something, it has to be, well, if it's God's will, I'm going to do this. Or if something yes. works out, yes. yeah, this worked out. Praise the Lord. You know, right, right, right. You, you can exactly. be. I mean, you you don't have to be this sort of um, caricature of a saint. You know, <laughs> right, right, right. Exactly. Oh yeah. my gosh. Well, I think that's. I think that, hopefully that's helpful for people that are still um, running into that frequently. I've, I've been running into it quite a bit. I have some families that I clearly have been. I have a church right now that has people from many, many different backgrounds. And so I hear that still coming out from time to time. With, even though they're starting to take a new lens, I'm still hearing it a lot. So I know that it's still out there very strong in people's, in people's minds. So hopefully that will help yeah. people understand a little bit. Well, and, you know, bringing it back down to the parable in Matthew's gospel, I, I think one possible avenue for addressing the, this parable is to 
is to relate this to the theme of discipleship as a whole. I, I think I like trying to trying to to deal with the details of the parable are going to get you are going to take you into a dead end because I just uh, Matthew's thinking here I think is not I just don't think it's consistent with Jesus. It's not consistent right. with the New Testament. Right. It's it's not consistent with our uh, you know. Christian theology, in my opinion, right, right. you know, he's, he's addressing a specific situation. I'm not faulting him too much here. I'm trying not to fault him too much anyway. Um, but, um, you know, if we try to address the parable as it is, it's, it's going to lead you into a dead end uh, right, of one right. kind of dead end or another, you know, um, uh, are, are the people to blame for this? Is the guy to blame for not having right. a garment or is God the one who is a tyrant and, and, you know, killing people right. and none of that is very productive theologically. Well, and we had the same problem last week. Yeah. Right? So, yeah. Um, but I think, I think there, there are enough connections between what we have in this parable with Matthew's theme of discipleship elsewhere that maybe we can broaden it out and, and I like explore that. that theme. Yeah. I think that's how to go. Yeah. Thanks. Okay. Thank you. That's our podcast for today. If you heard something that was helpful to you, please subscribe to our podcast and tell your friends about us. It's our hope and prayer that our time together might bear fruit in your ministry as you build up the body of Christ. We hope you'll tune in next week. And in the meantime, let's keep serving each other as we together listen, listen for, for the, the word. word.